0: Father, we, we come because we want to hear your voice. We've had music, we've heard about what you're doing in Mexico, and we're excited about those things, and, and now, Lord, we, we, we ask you, please, help us put away the things that are on our mind that might be nagging us to think about other things other than you right now, because you have something you want to tell us, and you want us to hear you. And I do pray, Father, please, let it be your voice that we hear this morning. We ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a little bit nervous this morning because I, I taught this at the other two messages, but Mickey McDermott is here. He's actually in construction, and I'm going to talk about construction. So I'm already on thin ice because I don't know a lot about construction. But my grandfather had a construction business, and he could build. And my dad was in the, not in the construction business, but he had tools. He could go to a Sears and he could buy a tool and he would know what to do with it when he brought it home. And when my father passed away, my brother got his tools because my brother makes stuff. Me, I'm good at watching people work with tools, right? Making you see me watch people work with tools. I have been told <clears throat> that when crews are working and I show up with my tools, when I join the crew, it's like losing two good men and I show up to help. I'm sure they mean that in a very loving way. Today, though, we're going to see in the Word of God that every single one of us is in the construction business. We're all building something every day of our life. What are we building? We're building our lives. Your life is going to look different than my life. That's okay. God loves variety. God created variety. That's wonderful. But we're going to see in Scripture, the question really isn't what are you building, but where are you building? So let's look at um, Matthew, a parable you're probably familiar with. This is Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Jesus was a brilliant teacher. He was so brilliant, he could make complicated things simple. And a parable is just that. A parable is a short, simple story that illustrates a big, important lesson. This particular parable comes at the end of perhaps Jesus's greatest message, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's read it. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. For context, just so we understand, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn over to the left a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 4. I just want us to see how all this began. This is, let's pick it up how the Sermon on the Mount started. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis. Decapolis means ten cities. Those were in Jordan and Syria, and it was the center of Greek and Roman culture in the Semitic world. And also Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Jesus had a huge following. He, everywhere he went, more and more people came from all over the world, partly because of what he taught, but mostly because of what he did, his miracles. But just can you imagine what that had to, had to be like to be there? Jesus is teaching, and then with just a look, just a word, just a touch, a blind person could see. A paralyzed person could get up and dance. No tricks. No, uh, no shills coming out of the audience pretending that they're they're hurt and then all of a sudden they become healed. Nothing like you might have seen on television. This is Jesus right out in the marketplace, healing people you would have known, people you would know. Like, oh my gosh, I know that person. He's been blind all his life. That person's been crippled all his life. That lady has leprosy. You would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and you would see Jesus touch them and right in front of your eyes, that person would be changed. Jesus had supernatural power. So I can imagine the crowds this day were pressing around him. I know I would, I'd want to get as close as I possibly could. So Jesus separated himself. He went up onto the mountain to try to get away from the looky-loos and spend time with the people that really came to hear him, hear what he had to say. And hopefully that's all of us here this morning. He sat down because that's what teachers did then. In our culture, teachers stand up. In those days, the teachers sat. The minute he sat, it signaled his disciples to come, and he started to teach them. The, the passage here is pretty clear that he was speaking primarily to the disciples. Other people were hearing, but he was speaking mostly to his disciples, and the word disciple doesn't necessarily mean just the 12. It's not that limited. It's more broad to mean all that were following him. Okay, that's the setting for the parable we read, so please turn back to Matthew 7, and we'll go through this parable because it's really it gets interesting. Jesus says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I am so glad Jesus said everyone. The word everyone means people of every kind, all kinds of people. And Jesus was clearly looking at all kinds of people that day. People came from all over. We read that. But you want to hear the good part about the word everyone? Everyone. Everyone is not limited in time. It does not only mean everyone right there in front of Jesus. It means everyone for all time. It means you and I here in 2014. Jesus is speaking to us just as much as he was speaking to those people a couple thousand years ago. I think, however, for us, if we're going to be honest, I think we're at a little bit of a disadvantage over those people. The people of Jesus' era were, were lived in a, a time that the historians call the classical Era. Historians call our era the information age. So we are absolutely inundated with messages. Everywhere we go, (laughs) everywhere we look, there's words coming at us, right? I mean, even at night, you go to sleep at night, it doesn't stop. Your phone is sitting right beside you on the bed, right? Collecting those texts, getting those emails, making sure all those unwanted pieces of advertising are stored on your phone, your newsfeed. You get all this stuff, so when you wake in the morning, Wow, how nice. You have everything right there to start your day right off again. So the reason I think we're at a disadvantage is it's hard for us in this information overload that we live in to know what deserves our undivided attention. Jesus answers the question in the verse we just read. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus says, if we give him our full attention... If we pay attention to his words and put them into practice, we are doing the wisest, most prudent, most enlightened, best thing we can possibly do. You cannot do better than that, than hearing him and putting his words into practice. Jesus is telling us that that listening to him and following him literally makes the difference between living a life of victory or living a life of disaster. We'll see that. Then Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. What words? Sounds important. What words is he referring to? What words does he want us to pay attention to? Well, the word therefore is the key because the therefore means in summary. He was closing his message. He's telling us, listen to the words I just preached to you in the Sermon on the Mount. There's also a general sense where it refers to all the words that he taught us in, in, our, in our Bibles, but primarily the Sermon on the Mount. So now the question is, what did Jesus say? In the Sermon on the Mount that we should be paying attention to and putting into practice. You will be wise and you will be blessed if you go home today and read the Sermon on the Mount for yourself. It's important. Jesus said to read it and follow it. It's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, 7. I'm going to give you a quick summary. This doesn't replace your homework it's just a quick summary because it's important for us when we get back to the parable to really have in our minds in general what was jesus saying we should be paying attention to and living okay so the overall message in the sermon on the mount is how to live how to live our lives people don't like it when jesus talks like like that people get kind of angry and say well wait a minute nobody tells me how to live my life and to that i'd say let's be realistic Everybody tells us how to live our life. Everywhere we go, people are telling us what to think, what to buy, where to go, what to do, what to vote, what to think, what to believe. Jesus is cutting through all that clutter to say very clearly, there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. If we live the right way, which is following him, we can look forward to victory. If we live the wrong way, which means living any other way other than following him, we have some serious consequences. The first thing Jesus wanted us to know in the Sermon on the Mount when you read it later today is something that we call the Beatitudes. It's Matthew 5, 3 to 11. The word Beatitudes means blessings. So the first thing he wants us to understand is God's ways are radically different from the world's ways. Think about the awards we give to people, uh, Best singer. Fastest, strongest, best team, you know, that's what we give awards to. In God's kingdom, his blessings, his awards go to a really unexpected group of people, like the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart. Those are who God gives awards to. Probably doesn't make for good television, but that's who God gives his awards to. Next, Jesus teaches us how our thoughts and our actions can bring glory and honor to God. When you read his words, it's an amazing thing to think about. It's what the the slides we just saw from the people that went to Mexico. It's what God gives us a privilege. Do you realize, according to the Lord, the Son of God, just the way you think or what you do brings honor, glory, brings a blessing to Almighty God? He gives us that privilege. Then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had told us other places that everything he told us he heard from the Father, So he's now giving us the heavenly perspective on things like anger, adultery, divorce, integrity, revenge, and true love. He teaches us about those things. Then in chapter 6, he explains the difference between a real relationship with God and a fake one. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't like going to church because it's full of hypocrites? Jesus had a lot to say about hypocrites too. In fact, in Greek, the word hypocrite means an actor, an actor, somebody that plays a part. Jesus said, you know what? Hypocrites, actors, can fool other people, but they never fool God. Next, Jesus taught us how to pray, how to speak to God. When you read this for yourself, it's what we call the Lord's Prayer, but when you read it for yourself, you'll discover something that's amazing. According to the Son of God, planet Earth is the only place in all of creation where God allows His will not to be done. Everywhere else, his will is done, but on earth, he gives you and I the free choice to follow or not. In chapter 7, Jesus warns that uh, God's ways are never popular. In fact, most people will do anything else other than follow God to eternal life. In Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, he says, "'Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction.'" And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Again, people in the world today want to insist many roads lead to God. Just be sincere. Whatever you believe, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Jesus is just saying very clearly, that's not true. There are many roads. Absolutely. But many roads lead to destruction. There's one road. It's very narrow, very thin. And it's, it's Christ. And that's the only road that leads to eternal life. Then our Lord finished his Sermon on the Mount by warning us about false teachers of God's word, the liars and the imposters. Let's read maybe one of the more sobering places in all of the Bible. It's Matthew seven, twenty-one to 23, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. On the day of judgment, many people will stand before Jesus and say, wait, wait, what about all those religious things I did for you? And Jesus is going to look them right in the eye and very plainly say, no, you didn't do those things for me. You did them for your own selfish reasons. So now, go away from me forever. When someone's a counterfeit, they can fool other people. They can fool themselves. But we see from the words of our Lord that even the imposter is eventually doomed by his own charade. It's important for us to understand this passage because sometimes people misunderstand it. These people did not lose their salvation that Jesus is talking to here. They never had salvation. Jesus said, I never knew you. The passage also makes a very remarkable claim that Jesus just claimed in front of all those people. That he is saying, I will be the judge you all stand in front of on judgment day. Jesus is claiming to be God The Lord says that our words can't save us, our good deeds can't save us, our religious activities can't save us, so what can save us? The only thing that can save us is being known by our Savior. And how do we become known? In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Listen and follow. Hear and obey Listen and apply the words. This is the theme of God's word from Genesis through Revelation. In our parable that we read, Jesus is telling us that you and I are like one of these two builders. We only have those choices. There's not three builders, there's two. We're either the wise builder or we are the foolish builder. (coughs) And he's telling us that our house, the house in the parable, represents our lives. That's what we're building. Do you notice we didn't get any details about the house these guys were building? We don't know if it was a one house was a two bedroom, one bath, and the other house was a four bedroom, two and a half bath. We don't know what color that house was. We don't know what the house was made of brick, maybe straw, we don't know. We don't know what, what the interior design was. Why didn't Jesus give us any details about the house? Because those details cannot save us in the storm. When the storm hits, the only thing that matters is the foundation. The foundation is critical to the safety of our house, the way we live, everything we do, everything we do. Why do you go to work? Do you think about that? What's your foundation for going to work? What's my foundation? What do I stand on when I go to work? Why am I going to work? Am I going to serve my employer as I would serve the Lord? What about how we treat others? everybody we meet, even the people we don't like too much. What's our foundation for how we treat others? What do we base that on? Do we treat them as the Lord would have us treat them? What do we do for entertainment? Do our choices honor the Lord? What's our foundation for that decision? What about church? Why do we come to church? Why do we serve in church? What's our foundation? Are we serving because we want to do exactly what the Word of God says or do we have something else in mind? Jesus is telling us what we're building is not nearly as important as where we're building because, again, there's only two choices, rock or sand, no middle ground. The world hates it when Jesus says that kind of thing. The world does not like absolutes. But Jesus is saying, yeah, well, here's an absolute. It's absolutely true. There's rock or sand. There's no middle ground. The song we sing is so good, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground. Is sinking sand. Let's look at that rock, Uh, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I've heard pastors, not at this church, preach on the Sermon on the Mount, this section we're reading, as if the Lord's words were merely poetic, inspirational thoughts. That's total nonsense. Jesus did not come to inspire us. His words are not meant to be inspiring. His words are meant to be obeyed. A storm is coming. Some of you are in one now. And Jesus wants us to be aware of the storm, be ready, and be safe. How do we do that? He's told us by putting his words into practice. How do you put his words into practice? It starts by changing your priorities. You have to know what he said, and then you have to decide that the highest priority of your life is to avoid the thoughts, the actions, and the attitudes that Jesus forbids and embrace the thoughts, attitudes, and actions that Jesus requires. Wise builders want to build a strong house. So they build it on the rock and they follow the Lord as best as they possibly can. We're wise when we make Jesus the foundation of everything we do at home, work, while we're commuting, when we're relaxing, when we're playing, when we're serving. This has really made me think all week long, everything I do, I stop to look at what is my foundation? What am I standing on when I do this? Do I do do everything on the rock or do I keep jumping off the rock onto the sand? When Jesus is our rock, we start to become changed. The transformation may not happen as quickly as we'd like, and there's always going to be probably areas that you're going to keep tripping over, but that's okay because house building is a process. It takes time. It takes our lifetime. We all struggle. We all sin. When we show up at the construction site, we all of us bring old, tarnished, broken tools that we're not very proud of. Tools like wrong thoughts and feelings, self-will, ungodly relationships, envy, pride. It's a big toolbox. The amazing thing, when you start to build on the rock and the Lord starts to change your life, the more of his words you take into your heart, the more you want to obey them. And you know what you discover? You discover that, oh my goodness, I can throw away this old, tarnished, broken tool I have carried for years. I never thought I could get rid of that. And you can throw it away and receive a brand new power tool right from the Lord's hand to yours. The wise man built his house on the rock. This word is an interesting one. It means bedrock, rocky ground. It means it's under the surface. You can't see it with the naked eye. If you want to find the rock, you have to look for it. Let's read a little more about this. In verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew against, and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. The rain came down. Streams rose. The wind is battering probably from every direction. Doesn't that sound a lot like life sometimes? Stuff comes down on us like rain. And if the stuff just keeps coming, it pretty soon feels like you're in a flood and you feel like you're going to drown. And temptation is like the wind it comes out of nowhere and it comes flying in there just trying to knock you down. I have a story about being battered by the wind. Uh, when I was much younger, I went skiing up in Mammoth with my wife, and we picked a particularly stormy day to go skiing, but I bought the lift ticket, so we were going to go. And as we were going up one of the lifts, uh, the chairlifts got stuck. So I left us dangling, probably 100, 120 feet up off the ground. And I, I remember them saying the winds were gusting up to 60 miles an hour. So we're up there swinging, dangling over there. My wife was scared, I was fine. When they finally got the lift started, it got us all the way to the top of the mountain like it was supposed to. And I was shocked to find out when we got up there, it was even blowing harder up there. It was blowing so hard, the minute we got off the lift, it blew Joni's earmuffs right off her head and threw them 20 feet away into an area that was roped off. And the sign said, danger, do not enter, no skiing, cliff. Those were brand new earmuffs. We bought them that day. They cost me 10 bucks. And I was looking at, Joni wanted to get down the mountain, but I'm, those earmuffs are right there. So I just pulled and skied over and I went under that sign that said, Danger, do not enter cliff. And I rescued those earmuffs and I dusted off the powder and came back over on my skis and handed them to Joni. I was so like a hero, you know. She was not happy that I risked my life for earmuffs. She did not call my action heroic. She called it something else. (laughs) But wind is like temptation. It can make us do some very silly things. The storm we just read about in this parable is severe. It's powerful. It's worthy of a storm watch on the evening news. Yet the house did not fall. Did not fall doesn't just mean it survived. It speaks of triumph. The house did not fall because it could not fall. It was anchored in the rock. It was being held in place by the rock. When the storm hit, the house wasn't saved because the wise builder had sandbags or a new roof or a storm window. The house was saved because of the foundation. He was anchored in the rock. Let's read about that other foundation, uh, verses 26 and 27. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice... It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Do you see that description of the storm in both stories? Identical. Both builders felt the full fury of that storm. Jesus does not promise that we will avoid the storm. What Jesus promises is how the storm will impact us the house. Built on rock cannot fall. The house built on sand cannot stand. Jesus, you notice, didn't say that the person who built on sand was unfortunate or unlucky. He said he was foolish. He was foolish because he chose the sand instead of the rock. Jesus said very clearly in the parable that both men heard Jesus' words. But one decided, eh, sand's pretty good. I think I'll build on that. And I guess if you're a builder, that makes sense. You can probably go a lot faster if you don't care about the foundation. For us, I know life can get pretty complicated sometimes. We have so many things to figure out. Oh, how am I going to deal with that situation? What happens if this, oh boy, if I do this and that'll happen, then I got to, con- and what about that person? How am I going to interact with that? There's just so many things we think about. You know, Jesus says, you that's sand. That's sand. You don't have to be that complicated. It's simple. It's the rock. Build on me. Build your life on my principles. Follow me in absolutely everything. In the parable of the two builders, both houses stood there just fine for a while. If you and I lived in that neighborhood, we probably would have think the guy that built on sand was the better builder. He'd probably be the one we'd want to hire because look, he got his house up there an awful lot quicker than the other guy that was fussing around with his foundation. But appearances can be really deceiving. The house that was built on the sand did not collapse right away. It did fine until the storm. And I've been thinking a lot about the kind of storms I've been through. And I realized I think a lot of my storms are self-inflicted. I think I get so caught up in just the cares of this world that creates a storm. And so we should look, uh, just turn to the left, Uh, maybe it's on the same page on Matthew 6, 31 to 33, Jesus addressing in the Sermon uh, Sermon on the Mount how to deal with these cares of the world, saying, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first that foundation. I don't know how you put things together, but typically when I try to put something together, I try to put it together first and then look at the instructions if I feel like I need to. By the way, I always need to. But I start just trying, wanting to build. I want to get into that. The Lord is saying, start first. Seek me first. Build your foundation first. Most important thing we can do. Jesus says that the fool's house fell with a great crash. The language here means it was a startling crash. It was horrific. It was a total loss. There was nothing to salvage. Jesus is telling us that our foundation right from the start determines our destiny. If we follow his instructions, we can look forward to victory. It's a sure thing. If we do not follow his instructions, we can look forward to a disaster. It's a sure thing. When I was in college, junior college, um, my history professor, handed out a paper, and it had 200 questions on it. And she said to us, I'm going to hand you out a paper, 200 questions, I'm going to take 50 of these and put them on the final exam. So if you know the questions and answers, which, by the way, she gave us the answers on the paper, if you, if you study this paper, you'll be fine on the test, because everything's going to come right off this paper. So you know what I did? I went home and I studied the paper. I studied it enough, I pretty well had it memorized. When I went in to take the test, the teacher was, told us the truth. It was 50 questions right off that page. I went right through, and I just knew every answer. I think we had 90 minutes to take the final. I think I was done in about 20. And I checked my work, and I was done. I handed it in. When I got up that early, all the other kids in the class were like, ooh, oh, why is he up? ooh, you know, like, is he quitting? What? I got 100%. Easiest A ever. I was shocked to find out later that some of my classmates actually failed that test. And many of them got lousy grades. Why? They didn't listen to the professor. They studied other things. These were good people. They thought they were prepared for the final exam, but they did not listen to the professor's instructions and studied the wrong things. I think you see the parallel in what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is also telling us that our foundation is hidden until the storm. We all look fine in the sunshine. When the storm hits, reveals what we're standing on. In Proverbs 10:25 it says, when the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Jesus is that foundation. Let's wrap this up with uh, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And not as their teachers of the law. Back in that day when, when the scribes or the, the teachers of the law would cite their interpretation of the law, they would list all of their predecessors who agreed with them. Here are the 20 other religious leaders who agree with what I'm about to say. And then they would tell you. When Jesus taught, the only person he cited for authority was himself. He claimed total authority because, of course, he had total authority. The people that heard Jesus were amazed. But the Bible doesn't tell us how many of them believed in him. They were just amazed. The same is true today. People can admire good preaching. (laughs) Maybe not today, (laughs) but when John's back, we can admire good preaching, but we can still remain in unbelief. We can focus on the speaker and miss the Savior. Jesus did not come to impress us or inspire us. He came to save us from the storm. When I was growing up, I had a hero. He was a movie star that some of you younger people won't know, some of your older people will kind of know, might maybe remember. His name was Danny Kaye. I see smiles. Thank you for smiling. love Danny Kaye. He could sing and dance and be funny all at the same time. He made the first movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, that I think they're doing a remake of now in the theater. Anyway, I loved him. I watched all his movies, and I'd always dream. My dream was someday I'd get to meet him. He passed away in 1987, and I never got to meet him. Shortly after his death, my wife and I were at a bed and breakfast, and I was sitting across the table at breakfast with this woman. We were getting to know each other, and for whatever reason, I don't remember why, I mentioned my love for Danny Kaye, and she smiled. And she said, oh, I was Danny's personal assistant for 30 years. I was like, oh my gosh, I had the best time talking to her and asking her questions. It was like I got to meet him. She could just tell me so many things I wanted to know. But she said something I'll never forget. She was with Danny on his deathbed. And lying there in that hospital, one of Danny's last words were, for the first time in my life, I have no future. Danny was dying His house was falling, he had no future. For us who build on Christ, we have the perfect future. Our deathbed is nothing but a springboard into eternal life. The house built on Christ can and will never fall. You and I are builders. We're each building something with our lives. Jesus is saying to us, "Rock." or sand? Where are you building? Let's pray. Father, how many times do you need to tell us to listen? Father, I pray we hear you. I pray, dear Lord, we just would embrace your words and realize you have the words of eternal life. Let us all be wise builders. Let us simplify our life by just turning to you for all the things that we worry about, Lord. you're You have the You have the wisdom. You have the words. You have the words of our lives. You alone know where we need to go, and you alone know how to get us there. I just pray, Father, that we would put our faith in you and trust you, and in everything we do, at home, at work, relaxing, playing, wherever you would take us, Father, that we would be standing on the rock by hearing your words and putting them into practice. We thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.